whatever you end up doing, it's a two things. Make sure you're the best at it and make sure it's something that you love. That seems to be my strategy, playing at both ends of the spectrum to learn about the other, other one, right? I would be a great hockey coach. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to our interview series, Football in the Trenches. Today we have Marcus Valfridsson with us. We're seeking to profile interesting personalities. And Marcus, no doubt, as you will certainly feel by the end of this podcast, is one of them. Um, he's experienced football from possibly every single angle I can think of. He is somebody who thinks a lot, transmits his thoughts a lot. Uh, has contributed a lot to developing the work of others. And uh, it's going to be an interesting discussion. Uh, as always, I have Jesse Edge here, our experienced content creator. And I have David Wernerson, my colleague, with us. And um, just like to remind everybody, we're sponsored by Game Insight, uh, which is a new social media platform and career-building education platform, uh, which focuses on promoting communication, and learning inside the game. You can visit gameinsight.sport for more information. So, Mr. Valfredson, please state your name, rank, and serial number for us. <laughs> I'm, I'm not answering those type of questions, man. All right, all right. <laughs> it's good to be here, guys. It's a, it's a great opportunity to talk with great people. Always fun. So uh, there's a friend of mine, actually my business partner, also always says that there's no such thing as a wasted meeting. And let's see if there's anything like a wasted podcast interview. Uh, I don't think so. But <laughs> Marcus, you've been a coaching evaluator. You've been a football innovator. You've been a content producer. You've been an author. Uh, you've been a man's coach. You've been a women's coach at high levels, Champions League quarterfinalist. Uh, thinker, catalyzer, club builder, scout, leadership trainer, academy head, sporting director, contract lawyer, headhunter. I mean, I don't think there's a single angle in the game you haven't tried to cover. Um, I don't honestly know if there is a perspective that you haven't kind of tried to look through. I mean, I know you're still trying. <laughs> uh, but um, I mean, why the journey? Well, why do why are we alive? Um, I, I think it boils down to uh, to the search of, of my personal meaning. So, what do I want to do in life? Um, first of all, great book recommendation: "Man's Search for Meaning" by Viktor Frankl. Um, no, I, I think it boils down to one my, one thing. My father said actually one of the few things he said that was really helpful. Well. I'm, let's see if it will helpful but he always said that um you know whatever you end up doing it's a two things make sure you're the best at it and make sure it's something that you love because if it's something that you love and i think you many people have said this i think but if it's something that you love doing you don't feel like you're working and honestly i don't feel like i'm working and and i don't ever want to feel like i'm working so that's why i tend to do things that interest me things that are I find fun or interesting, challenging, and well, challenges are one of my favorite things. But uh, I think that's that's the thing. It's it's a personal journey. Um, you know, you develop as you go. You learn stuff, and especially about yourself. And 
yeah, you move on and things happen, right? I mean, how many times have you not been in situations and you reflected on things and you said, hey, at that time where I met that person, if I hadn't, if I'd been late or, you know, if, if I would have said no to that meeting, well, then I wouldn't have ended up getting that job and I wouldn't have moved and I wouldn't have met the love of my life and I wouldn't have my kid. I mean, the margins are so slim. Uh, it's, it's amazing and fascinating. Yeah, and that's, that's completely true. And to completely back that up as well, in another angle, I think if you don't love football and the profession and game that we're in, it's such a cutthroat industry, you know, so that if you don't have the passion for the game, then, you know, you're not going to last very long, basically. <laughs> no, I think it's a fascinating business um, because obviously many businesses are like that, right? It's a cutthroat business in any business, probably. Um, it's high competition levels, but in football, it seems to be a little bit different. Um, and uh, to your point, Jesse, I think you know, if you are not in love with coaching, for example, if you're not in love with the daily grind of coaching, you know, individually, collectively, uh, doing those 12 hour, 14 hour days, six days a week, 11 months a year, if you're not in love with that, you shouldn't be coaching. So that's why I'm not coaching. Um, but I'm in love with the game, but in a different different way now. Yeah, and then as well through continually and never-ending improvement as well because the game catches up to you so quickly if you're in a stagnant position. Yeah, I, I fully agree. And I think that is you know, a life thing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if, if you're not continuously learning, if you're not uh, challenging yourself and, and developing yourself, then why are you here? I mean, if you're not here to to improve yourself and help others improve themselves, then, I mean, you kind of just taking up space. Completely agree, completely agree. Uh, but we wanted to take you back a little bit into your past. Uh, we wanted to start with, tell us a little bit about your upbringing and uh, which, which environment, area, family life. Well, I, um, I grew up in the, northern parts of Sweden, uh, in the middle of the forest, uh, not many people around, um, a lot of trees, <laughs> a lot of snow, um, cold, uh, single mom, tried her best, um, and uh, at least she, she, she made me uh, come out alive, so that's, I'm glad for that, um, but I think that influenced a lot of my, my early start of my, my life, um, and I'm kind of back close to where I grew up now, it's a totally different vibe this time because I've evolved, but uh, the upbringing was relatively lonely uh, as a single child uh, with a single mom. Um, then, you know, I think because of that, I was drawn to team sports. So I participated, first of all, I think I participated in every sport that was on offer in our small little town, except skiing, which is kind of ironic. Uh, <laughs> it's but, impossible. <laughs> I, mean, I, um, I did high jumping, running, uh, you know, like athletics, and I obviously played played uh, soccer, football, uh, floorball, uh, hockey. Uh, I even tried basketball. Played two games until I realized I sucked, so then I stopped playing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I was always drawn to team sports, um, probably because of that upbringing, and mm -hmm. which. So it, it, I'm very grateful for that. But um, always been fascinated about that kind of the team dynamic and the hierarchies within that and so forth. So, um, yeah. All right. And 
Interesting. You talk a lot about like different team sports you've been a part of. And so I want to go back to like, how did your original playing career develop into, well, an innovator role in football? Well, I think uh, many times when people kind of ask me, hey, so what did you play? And I say, I, I didn't play. I, I stood there in goal. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think I ended up being a goalkeeper because I wasn't a very good player. Because I remember when I was young, you know, I alternated playing goalkeeper or striker. But as it comes kind of full circle eventually, that seems to be my strategy, uh, playing at both ends of the spectrum to learn about the other, other one, right? Yeah. Because if you're a decent striker, um, then you learn stuff as a goalkeeper and the other way around. But um, yeah, I, I was a goalkeeper, um, you know, didn't really play seriously until I was around 20, uh, which is kind of late obviously played all my whole upbringing, but, um, you know, started really focusing on football when I was about 20 because our, our first team locally went up to the fourth division and then it became a little bit more serious. And then I had this, I moved down to my dad's in Uppsala. I think it was around, I was around 22. And in the first, in the first uh, friendly game with a new team, I broke my ankle. A couple of minutes before halftime, and I told him to hey, tape it up. I'm gonna play, um, but hey, it's halftime, so you know, go off, and it turned out to be broken. Um, but that gave me six weeks in the cast and some couple of months, you know, without playing, which brought time for reflection. And I decided then that I wanted to work within football because I, I really didn't have a career path. Um, you know, I didn't go to university. Um, not a big fan of studying at the time, uh, did a lot of different work. So sales jobs in different kind of sectors. Um, I was at the time, I was actually uh, a PE teacher at temp. So I was like trying a lot of different things. And I sat there in my cast and I thought, what am I going to do with my life? Right. And then I just thought back to, okay, so, you know, days when I'm sick, days when I'm feeling down, what do I always either watch or read about and it turned out to be football so i decided there and then that i wanted to work within the game uh, for me then i thought that that meant being a coach so then the plan became hey, i'm going to play as long as possible at a highest possible level to learn as much as possible from other coaches that was my strategy and uh, you know that brought me to norway playing semi-pro at the second level or third tier actually second division and uh, about to had a good season about to go to the first division and uh, obviously my knee uh, got torn in the second training session so that didn't happen and that gave me an excuse to quit playing and finally stop start coaching um, but who who brought you into was it did you did you go into football yourself or did you, can you trace back your your original contact with it to anybody that kind of I think it's like, yeah, when you're, when you grow up in a small, small rural uh, kind of town, uh, I think you, um, I mean, you're part of the football team because you're one of the kids that are there. <laughs> so literally the team is more or less your classmates. Um, there's <laughs> probably, you know, one or two who didn't play, but that's about it. And I think everyone played when we started out, when you were like six, seven years old. I think every kid in my age played uh, on the team. So I think that was kind of the, the road into it. So, yeah. uh, you know, a socially semi-forced way. Uh, 
Yeah. But I think given my my upbringing being relatively lonely, I think that was also why it was natural for me to seek those the social um, you know companionship of, of being part of a team and finding yeah. kind of my own space um, you know to to be seen and to be heard a little bit more. I think. Yeah, I mean, uh, Jesse comes from a similar, similar country in New Zealand, but I mean, I, I just want to illustrate here, uh, knowing that part of Sweden, I mean, imagine a small town population, what, two, three thousand, where the next town is a hundred kilometers away. Less right? half of that, maybe a thousand. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then through saying that, do you think you gain something from being brought up in such a small community or lost something compared to say a big city, for example, Stockholm or Gothenburg? First of all, I'm very grateful that, you know, the way I was brought up and where I was brought up happened because otherwise I wouldn't be here and who I am. So I'm always grateful for that. Um, I do think it brought me things, things that are probably less common for children today because being, by being alone, uh, you need to find ways to, to stay, I don't know, engaged, stay, uh, you know, do, do stuff, right? And you, you're bored a lot and you, you, um, you play with different things and et cetera, et cetera. So I think it helped my creativity. Um, you know, it also helped my, my threshold for being, being lonely. So um, I'm comfortable being lonely. I need to be alone, alone sometimes to kind of re-energize and all that stuff but it also you know it gives me the you know i have an ability to figure out things in maybe a little bit different way than others so and i think that is part of that is because of my upbringing definitely and when did you realize that at a young age or has that come quite recently were you very kind of aware of you know how deeply you think about things or did that come later on in life it's um, definitely uh, something that's come later on in life. Uh, you know, the benefit of being old or becoming old. Uh, but it's also, I, you know, when I look back, I think it's always kind of been there, but it's been nagging me. And it's been um, those kind of reflections have popped up in the past, but then I think I've used different outlets, negative ones to kind of bury them or, or, you know, to, to deal with the dissonance, uh, it was a kind of a kind of dissonance. And I've dealt with that in negative ways in the past, uh, tripping myself up and, you know, uh, making, uh, making myself not succeed at certain things. Um, and that, that's all been kind of a, been sp spun out of that dissonance that's been within me. And now it feels like I've finally uh, realized some more stuff about myself. And I think, you know, as you as you go and as you become older, you, you keep realizing stuff and and uh, learning things about yourself. And it's cool, scary and um, interesting. But nobody I've I mean, the contact I've had with you, you're not you're not a passive philosopher who sits there under a tree thinking about life. I mean, one of the one of your adventures has taken you, uh, for example, to a camp where you had to be silent for 10 days and, and you're seeking, in, seeking insight, seeking knowledge. Uh, could you give us a little bit of background about that experience? Yeah, and it's, um, it's a 10-day, I was on a 10-day Vipassana meditation camp twice, um, first time in 2017. And it was, uh, it was inspired by 
uh, a, a good friend of mine, Magnus Persson, um, who coached uh, in, in Malmö now in Spain. Um, uh, and he, because he mentioned that he had been on a 10 day meditation camp. And the first time he was there, I think he left after three days, something, because it was so tough. And also uh, another person that I, I worked with mentioned the same thing and that, you know, after tried it after two days, home crying, basically. <laughs> so me and my, uh, my, my lust for challenges kind of, uh, you know, that spurred me as, you know, uh, yeah, if these guys couldn't do it the first time, I'm gonna, I'm gonna definitely do it. Um, so it, it was a challenge, but also I started meditating in 2015 and I'm not sure how I got to that or, you know, what led me to it. I think it had something to do with me working six and a half days a week, 12 hours a day for like five years um, or maybe even 10 years, actually. Um, I think that kind of led me to the meditation. So I think it was a kind of a, like this, this feeling inside that, okay, you need to do something else than, you know, popping a beer or watching a movie or something else like that to relax. So um, yeah, the first, the first inklings of meditation came in 2015, the meditation camp itself, 10 days, like you say, Tony, it was, uh, you're not allowed to talk to people. So that's one challenge. Uh, you're also not allowed to look people in the eye. Oh, yeah. And uh, no physical contact with mm. others or yourself. Um, <laughs> so you have 10 days uh, on a vegan diet. In addition to that, you only have two meals a day, which was kind of tough the first time. Now it's no problem because now it's two meals a day every day. Um, but that, there were some interesting challenges. Let's just say that. And uh, mm. it was very tough, but rewarding. I think the vegan diet would get me at the end, but I still understand it's, I mean, until you try it, <laughs> it's, uh, it has to be a real challenge. I mean, 10 days, ah, 10 days, right? But oof, we're, we're social animals. We, we interact with our environment and people around us every day, right? Yeah, and the worst case or the worst thing uh, is that you are alone with yourself. So it's both, your, both the worst thing and the best thing. So in the beginning, and I said it's like the first, the first camp in 2017 was the worst time of my life and it was the best time of my life. <laughs> so like the, I remember day three and four, like horrible, felt horrible. I, I could really understand why people broke down and went home and people did. <laughs> um, because it's, you know, you sit there and you meditate and it's like you're peeling an onion. Like yeah. for me, it was like peeling an onion. You went from like what happened yesterday and I think I went through all my relationships with, with girlfriends. I, you know, all my relationships with friends. You know, you kind of slowly peeled everything back. At the end, it was like a, felt like this was this uh, waterfall uh, that was just, you know, falling on me with negative stuff uh, on one day. And then the day afterwards, it was the same feeling, but the opposite, only positive things. All of a sudden I had all these positive memories from my childhood. I had this one experience and I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to sound like a weirdo even saying this, but I had this one day there, uh, I think it was day eight or nine. And it felt like I could uh, go to a certain date, like, you know, April 12, 1988. And I could like, ah, oh, 
I wasn't there. I did this. You know, I see myself and I see my friend and I don't know, might, might have been just illusion or, or something because of the, the vegan diet, Tony, but. Um... <laughs> yeah, what wasn't that vegan salad, mate? <laughs> a lot of mushrooms Je or. Jesse, Jesse's a vegan. <laughs> <laughs> so but it, it was, it was really, really awesome, awesome thing. And, you know, one thing is just the, the level of challenge, right? So the, mm -hmm. that type of challenge thing, just, I mean, today, just imagine staying without your cell phone for 10 days. That in itself would be a challenge for, for most people. And then staying alone for 10 days will also be a challenge and take all, take all distractions away. I mean, come on, you will, uh, you will see some really cool stuff happen to yourself. And then what would you say was the biggest takeaway that you gained from doing that, that you brought back into the, the normal world, basically? <laughs> What, yeah, any, or into football, yeah. And did you at any point link it to football? I think you can. You can definitely. You can link it to every part of life because what comes out of it is a level of acceptance for things, yeah. so that you accept that things are the way they are, um, and you stop working yourself up about stuff you can't control. So I think that was kind of the key thing, the most important thing, the higher level of acceptance, but also personal insights. So by going back into your own life, you find things that have triggered you or things that when you can link stuff to, for example, for me, um, when an opposition player talk, tackles uh, one of my players really, really bad, I get very angry. I mean, I'm proportionally angry because I feel like my player have been unjustly, unjustly treated, right? Mm -hmm. And then I, I kind of, after meditation camp, I can see, oh, okay, I understand why, because I thought I was that when I was a kid, you know, and uh, I saw others being unjustly treated and stuff like that. So I can, I can realize that my reaction is not because of the situation in front of me, but it's because what happened to me in the past, and that's why I react the way I do in this situation. So it gives you a higher level of self-awareness, which is crucial, especially if you're going to coach at a top level. Old yeah. player broken, new player come. Yeah. <laughs> no, but that, um, that really reminds me of a quote my grandfather always used to say to me. And he said that if you don't know where you come from, then how do you expect to know where you're going? Yeah, beautiful quote. Yeah. Can you provide us with the link in case anybody really is inspired from what you're saying? Like, uh, I mean, I, I know a guy uh, and would like to try one of these camps. <laughs> oh, definitely. Uh, let's, let's link it in the show notes. Yeah, we'll do that. Well, uh, really interesting topic. Um, and we'll try to go back to football now. Uh, but stay, stay on with the challenge. And uh, both you and I have been involved in um, women's football. Uh, you're in a top team and I'm in a well-known relegation battle. Uh, so what are the challenges of women's football? They're not connected to dollars. What immediate steps can then be taken to improve growth? Well, I think at the end of the day, everything is connected to the money. So you, you cannot kind of say that this has nothing to do with it, but it's indirectly connected to money. Um, where, whereas it seems like the focus today is the direct uh, relationship with money. It's more the indirect relationship that's important. 
because what is needed to get more money into women's football well it's more attendance uh, more viewership etc right so you, you have you have one part of of the of the of the problem is that uh, because you can say all you want that you want as much pay as the guys and obviously if you bring in the same amount of money you should definitely have it but it's um, you know from my experience in linchepping it was a discussion that was not rooted in reality so um, basically the club being um, you know, saying to sponsor that we should have the same amount as Norrköping, which is the men's team that has 15,000, 10 to 15,000 people in the stands every week. And we had a thousand, mm -hmm. uh, if, if even that. So, you know, that's, that's one discussion. I think the, the way to improve uh, women's football in the long run is as with everything, it's education, it's coach education especially. Mm -hmm. And that's what I mean by it's indirectly linked to money. Because the reason that in general, I'm just generally speaking, obviously, there's always exceptions, a lot of exceptions, and more and more coming. But in general, the level of coaching in women's football is worse than in men's football. And that is at least a huge part of that is tied to the money. Because yeah. if you if you get, uh, let's say 20,000 bucks to coach a under 15 boys team but you only get ten thousand to coach a under 15 girls team which team will have the better coach i mean that that, that question answers itself right so uh, i think that is where where the biggest problem is there's probably also a couple of structural uh, issues uh, i mean i remember i remember growing up and also seeing the best female players uh, of my age group especially they came from having played with boys the first 10, 15 years of their lives. Mm -hmm. So I know there are some, some places where they are talking about this. I think Holland is one of them. Netherlands. Yeah, Holland is one of, not the Netherlands is one. I think they even decided that they have to until, until a certain age. Yeah. And, and I, for me, it makes sense. I mean, why should you distinguish uh, a six-year-old, right? A six-year-old is a six-year-old. And six and then the, you can you can it's better to tear them after the level of development than their gender See yeah i totally agree i think i think they did a study about that as well in in the netherlands and it said like until until age of 12 because mainly to be honest the biggest problem here is the like parents for the kids and then the boys because they don't want the, the girls to interfere in their boys education but what you can see in research is that until the age of 12 before like physicality becomes an a becomes yeah. a factor, both benefits from it. Yeah. So Pre puberty, uh, I don't see yeah. a, I don't see a reason to to split them up. Uh, I mean, there might be one. I I just don't see it. For, for years, for in my in my career as a, as a lean, mean box to box midfielder, and only my oldest friends won't laugh at that. <laughs> um, I was I, I so serious, by the way. So I, I, have <laughs> <laughs> I laughed. And I, I don't mean chicken box the chicken box, guys. Um, but uh, I, I remember that we had a, we had this elite, you know, kind of weekend game as you do going. And I had, we had women players all the, all the way until the age of sixteen, and it was a great experience. Always, it was such a fantastic, um, such a fantastic challenge. They were really good players. We all we all benefited from it. It was really competitive. It was. Uh, it was a heck of a way to to preserve our passion for the game, or even to grow it, yeah. uh, and and I'm sure all of us benefited. I mean, not only the women, the men too. Uh, so I'm a huge advocate of it. 
No, I think it's it's interesting. I think it's a it's an interesting thought experiment as well because I now re, I now remember when I played hockey, we had a we had a girl playing on our team. Because now I, a picture appeared in my brain where the, she always changed in the, her own dressing room stuff. And yeah. that wasn't a thing for us. We were like 13, 14, 15. We didn't care. It was just, you know, okay. Um, but, and I, I think when you look back, historically speaking, if we look at, let's say, Norway and Sweden, I think most national team players from the women's side came from small towns. So they came from environments where they played with boys. I think that has changed. Uh, but then the question is, has it changed because uh, there now are many more uh, girls playing football, which I hope, so therefore they have their own teams or have it changed because they're not allowed to play with the boys anymore? So that, yeah. That's kind of an interesting thing. And you know, what, what kind of leads to that? Would they have been better if they would have played more? It's, a, it's an interesting thought experiment, but um, you know, Let's follow what they're doing in the Netherlands. Um, I see like pre-puberty, definitely. Why should you split them up? Um, afterwards, I get the point because it's, uh, I mean, it's biologically different. Uh, don't, don't listen to what everyone says, but men and women are actually biologically different. Uh, so there <laughs> is an impact. Um, yeah. well, that's the age as well when like testosterone starts to kick in and through puberty and that as well. But as well, that's, like going back to my own experiences from New Zealand, that happens quite often as well. You have many mixed teams, women and men's, well, girls and boys at that age. And also a lot of the time it happens that you move through age groups as well. So it's not just that, you know, under sixes are under sixes. You might have a, you know, an under eights team. I was six playing an under eights team. You know, it's through about your growth and physicality as well that you don't see like a, you know, maybe a five foot, 13 year old kid against a three foot, uh, 13 year old kid, you know, and it's, it's just in terms of the best way to develop players and through both genders is, is a big hot topic. And, you know, that we're still trying to search the right answer for, I guess. Yeah. And you know, what, what, uh, what I think is like back to David's question, I think maybe the main problem is this, this is four dudes talking about how to improve women's football. Shouldn't be happening. Should be four women, or at least three women, and maybe one dude, because he's an expert or something. But why should we, you know, uh, say what thing? I mean, it doesn't make sense. And I think one back to my experience with Linköping, I tried extremely hard to find a woman woman to be my assistant coach. Th there was none. I mean, literally, there was none. And and I mean that that for me really opened my eyes to what maybe the major problem uh, is. And that's, you know, the, the amount of, of uh, women coaches. I think that's the, probably the biggest thing that also can be influenced and can be fixed. And I, I know, I mean, I know that the federations are doing, having a lot of incentive programs to make that happen, but you also have to ask yourself, you know, what more can we do? How can we bring more, more uh, women into football? Would you, even would into you? the men's game as well yeah. even into the men's game as well like my a friend of mine he went on trial to a fourth tier club in germany that had a woman coach you know but i've never experienced that over my whole whole time of playing football and and why not why not 
I, I totally agree, Jesse. I think it was a good answer from like the coach of Chelsea's women when she was asked about taking over a men's team. Then first of all, she said, "Why should I go to a Division Two team?" <laughs> uh, but but I just I realized when they asked that question, I think it was so so weird. Nobody would ask a uh, woman, "Why are you like an ex CEO of a company?" Mm. Football is just another business. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter. So like, if you have the knowledge, of course you can lead the players. Yeah, I, uh, Empl employees. Yeah, I, great, great answer by Emma. Uh, she's a she's a wonderful person and an amazing coach, and um, she could definitely be a coach at the top level uh, in the men's game. <clears throat> definitely. Uh, I mean, why why shouldn't she? She's uh, she has that. Uh, she has all the all the tools. All the tools. Yeah, just 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 think just think about how easy it would be to 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 enhance squad chemistry in a men's team with having an unusual ride about that. You hire a women's coach and just think about, you know, how much of an impact on having everybody as part of the project feeling they're part of something unique could have. It's a really interesting thought. Um, I mean, for me, agree or disagree with this statement, please, Marcus. Uh, the men's game, comparing to the women's game, is more stagnant, conservative, hierarchical. Uh, the women's game is more direct, a little bit more merit-based and more free-flowing and in a faster pace of development. Can women's football outpace men's football in development? Why not? I mean, why not? I think, uh, I think you, you touched upon something that's important and that's the, um, that's the, uh, what was the word you used? But, uh, you know, about the men's game, that's, that it's very, what's the word you used? Jesus. Stagnant. Stagnant, yeah. And, and very hierarchical uh, and it's, I, I mean, I think, first of all, I think any, again, I don't like, if, I don't even like talking about genders because I don't think it, it's actually yeah. pertinent to the discussion because I do think that there's, there's a lot of change that could be made in a positive way, regardless of it's women's football or it's men's football. I think you can do stuff in a different way. I think you can run clubs in a better way. I think you can treat people in a better way. I think you can bring back the mere, what is it called? What is it? Meritocracy? Meritocracy. Meritocracy. <laughs> this is me not being a native English speaker, then this happens sometimes. <laughs> you can bring that back into sport because that's, for me, that's the foundation of sport, right? You are measured based on your performance. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And that's what it should, you, you should be based on. You shouldn't be based on anything else, what your background is or where you come from or you know, how, uh, who your father was or who your mother was or, uh, you know, how long you've been there or whatever, you should be based on what you're doing. Um, that's, that's the basis for your, for your evaluation. That's the way I think it should be. And that's interesting because we kind of touched on that subject a little bit yesterday. That's quite interesting about football as well compared to, for example, if you're a sprinter and you're the fastest runner, you win the race. Whereas in football, it's such an opinion-based game that things like cultural things that happen in different countries do, do come into play sometimes. And yeah. it's a very weird, but also interesting sport to be involved in because of that. Well, I think, you, you know, you trace it back to the roots of the game, right? I mean, why, who started playing football? Well, I mean, it was the workers at the mill, yeah. right? They, you know, that was their leisure. Uh, so then inherently it is political kind of, and you kind of see this in the U.S. now when sport is becoming more political. Soccer, obviously, one of the, the major drivers in that. And 
personally, I'm, I'm not a big fan of politicizing things in general, uh, because I do think we can talk about ideas and solutions to problems instead of, you know, getting into our, each of our camps and then yelling at each other. It doesn't seem to be very productive. Um, but no, we can't. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is a historical kind of answer to to your reflection, Jesse, and that that is that, that's that's the starting point. I mean, you see, it, certain teams are are formed. The, the the basis of the formation was a certain group of people, right? Of a certain back in the day class, especially in Europe, you have different classes of people. Uh, pe people in the U.S. Try, tend to forget this that that the Europe is actually a class society. Right, so you didn't, you know, depending on your class, you had different things you can do. Uh, that's not the same problem um, in the U.S. It's a bit different problem, but that's the starting point, right? So that was where it come from. So I understand that football and soccer is politicized uh, due to the history of it. Um, I would wish that we would focus more on what we can do together to improve stuff instead of, you know, focusing on who to blame because that's not very productive. Uh, so I've got a, a question from one of our viewers, which has to be one of us because it's not a live stream. Uh, what's the what's the name of the monkey, Marcus? <laughs> Tony. Tony. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Good answer. Um, well, uh, whisper on the wind has it. I mean, there's a there's a rumor in the press that uh, you you have a new club project in the in the pipeline. What's it like putting all the building blocks for a new professional club, Marcus? Tell us a little bit about it. We're really... Yeah, well, it's a bit, to go back a little bit, it's, it's my kind of dream come true situation, right? So uh, given all the different things I've done in football, I've, um, like you mentioned, I've amassed a lot of different perspectives and some knowledge in, in different areas. And, you know, through my coaching, I kind of realized that I spent more time doing things that improved the organization that made me look good by improving my team or, you know, uh, making me win more games. So I focused on the wrong things, uh, kind of. But I always left organizations, you know, better off than when I came there. And that's always been a crucial thing for me. So reflecting on this, I thought, you know, one of, wouldn't it be nice to run a club one day just to kind of you know, show that it's possible to do it in a little bit different way. Uh, I don't say, you know, revolutionary stuff, but, you know, treating people better and, you know, just having um, a, a more holistic plan. Uh, let's, let's put it like that. So that's one, one side of it. The coin, the other coin is that I, since I was a kid, I always dreamt about living in the U.S. Um, and for reasons, uh, you know, that... I think my my kind of foundational values uh, mirror the foundational values of that country well. So I I always had those two dreams. So I thought, hey, why not start a club in the U.S.? How hard can it be, right? So it's so nice for an American to hear that somebody still remembers the original values of the United States. But <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> weird guy in the Swedish mountains, he he remembers yeah. it. Um, but yeah, so that was the original thinking, and it turns out that it's very hard. Uh, <laughs> to start your own club but to answer your question how how it is it's uh, it's it's uh, highs and lows right it's uh, you know you you have breakthroughs and you you work on the plan the business plan the financial stuff uh, all the stuff that you never did as a coach uh, so you know extremely rewarding uh, very very difficult because it's been outside my comfort zone a lot but also very rewarding because 
I learn new skills. And you know, for every new new challenge that I meet in this process, I have to go and learn stuff. So I took a course on contract law. So I took a you know, I need to read up on financial stuff, how you do budgeting, and you know, blah blah blah. Right. So all that good stuff. Uh, it's been ups and downs because. I'm not the most patient guy. <laughs> so, I mean, preferably I would have had this done already a couple of years ago. Um, you know, the day after I walked into the USL office uh, would have been the best day to start the club kind of. Um, obviously we had some some COVID stuff in between that have kind of impacted the impacted the plan a bit, but we're we're in a good position now. So I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to it. This is, a, this is a veiled criticism of a third party, but I've, I've just been involved with the club project where where their idea of starting up was ab- spending money on absolutely every single imaginable category, uh, you know, sports medicine department, eight youth teams, this, that. Yeah. W- what would you prioritize uh, for best effect in building a club? Yeah, now, so this is obviously for the last two years, I, I've given this some thought and, you know, this might the answer will surprise you given my background in developing players working with young kids working with you know academies and helping coaches all over the world but i would prioritize <clears throat> getting butts in seats mm-hmm. because if you don't have people watching and you know doesn't have to be only on site obviously but you need to become relevant because if you're not relevant in your local market then you don't have the leverage to do anything of the stuff that you really want to do. Hmm. So you want to educate players, you want to develop your own players. That's great because it's, I think is the right way to do it. But in order to be able to do that, you do need the top team or teams, because I think you should have both a men's and a women's team. The top teams need to be relevant. The club needs to be relevant. And you, obviously you can do that in different ways and you can have a relevant club without having a professional team on top. But in this context, we're talking about what's most important in a professional club. So I would say, make sure that your club becomes relevant. And there are some clubs that do a really good job on this. And then they kind of screw up the rest. And like you say, Tony, they go the other way around. So they just throw money at things and hope that things should, you know, uh, solve themselves and make them relevant. Doesn't work. So you need to analyze your market. I think you need a, you need a stadium. That's really good, uh, and you, that's in under your control, so you can control your income streams, and then you need great people uh, and community engagement. I think those are the, I think those are the four things I probably stole from Peter Wilt. Um, but when Peter <laughs> sees this, Peter, thank you, uh, thank you for our conversation. Um, but I, I do think that, that that is it. I mean, if you don't have if you don't have that engagement, if you don't have that relevance, I mean, why are you there? Well, that's basically the same then as basically every business right the customer the people watching are your customers and that's uh but the caveat actually not because as you see in modern business as well you see this uh, this tribalism right so you see the modern brands now being much more focused especially with the millennials that you need to build that relationship with Mm -hmm. you and in that sense it's it is, is the same the thing is that you know for us who lived in uh, or was grown up grown up in Europe, we had that relationship with our local club from the day we were born, basically. Uh, that relationship was always there. 
that's not the case in, in the US and for professional club. Uh, same is, same will be true if you start a new professional club in, in Scandinavia today. That would be difficult because you would struggle to get that relevance and get that connection. But that's like you say, Jesse, it's the same thing with business. You need to have that relationship with your customers, build loyal customer base, and that's then you're good. And that comes through, for example, marketing throughout all the processes of of the business or the football club. I think it goes. I think it comes from what you do, right? So yeah, and who you are kind of thing. Um, so in a sense, you can call it marketing, but I would say that it's about doing things the way you want to do them so doing it in a good way so if you treat people well right so if you treat people yeah. well that is in a way it's marketing because yeah. I, mean, I really see the contrast there i mean i i thought your question was great jesse and i and i think that there's something really striking about it about what marcus has said and that that's so many football clubs are not built for the fans the fan income is a limited income uh it has a limited overturn it's finicky Pandemics can hurt it, <laughs> uh, but so many football clubs are built for for player sales. They're built for TV rights. They're built for you know these abstract business concepts. Uh, TV rights, okay, there's a fine line. I mean, TV rights are based on the fan viewer base, but yeah. it's not tied to the local it's, community. It's it's, it's yeah. this is why I think the U.S. is interesting because that's not the case in the U.S. yet, at least. Because in the U.S., the the soccer clubs are based on the the tenants. That's it. I mean, I think eighty percent of your your revenue is game day revenue. I think it's at least eighty percent is it's game day revenue. So it's like it's it, that's in that way. And in, in if you go to Europe, I remember in London, for example. I mean, I think it's twenty percent of the of the revenue is game day revenue. The rest is sponsorship, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So. Definitely. I, I, I agree. I was going back to Europe and I was looking into the economy. I was talking about like women and men's football. We did a comparison, like how the salary compares to the income from attendance. What you can see in, in men, in Sweden, at least, they're getting better at it. Like it's more, more but when you look at the women's side, oh my God, then, then the salary should be way, way lower. And that's nothing, that's nothing you, can, you can put out there. But that's the reality. And also when you look into, and, that's, and then you can do, go through all the clubs, especially in Sweden and Europe, you're so focused, they, they get the salaries. Okay, we, we pay this, this amount of salary to all the players mm-hmm. and then we'll see. But if you look at the, at the US and you look with the lockdowns and everything, you can see, even see like an NHL, which I follow, it's a big, hurting them big because of the evidence that's not there. So I think it's, it's a great way to start. And I totally agree with that. Yeah, and that, that's why it's been challenging for me, for my brain, especially in the beginning, because like, I mean, I'm Europe, European, so in my brain, ah, oh, player sales, that's uh, half of the income, but nope. <laughs> but let me, to use a baseball term, I'm going to throw you a curveball. <laughs> what does the American fan in your local community, American fan in your local community want to see? I think they want to see something that they, that is a part of them or a mirror image of them. So it's something that, they want to see something that can channel their identity and their emotions through it. So, um, and that's why I think it's your, how you kind of brand your club. It's not, it's not up to me to decide how the club will be. Um, I mean, parts of it is because parts of it is me, just the way I am. But the biggest thing is to get that community engagement and to become relevant 
we need to be able to identify with the people who live in our city. So, and then that's when I like, when I looked at potential markets, um, one of the things that I've been working on or thought a lot about was how can, because the team I want to see on the field is a hardworking group. Also because it's a division three team. So, you know, you're not going to pay stars. So it will have to be a good collective. They will work hard together, you know, and, and really show people that they work hard both on and off the field. So then when I look at the market, well, if I would put my team in, let's say West Palm beach, wouldn't it wouldn't fit the the narrative of the community right mm -hmm. um but if i put it in a different city that has more of a let's call it more of a let's say working class kind of uh, uh, demographic more diverse demographic you know then i think the way i would like my team to be can uh, mirror the way that the the citizens of this city would like their team to be and then i think you have a good fit because you need to take that into account. You, you cannot just go into city and do a, you know, run a team the way you would like it to be and then think everything will be fine. So we're going to move into the rapid fire questions section. So this is quick questions with quick answers. So we're going to start the rapid fire questions, starting with what was, who was your favorite player growing up? Well, let me start by saying I hate these type of questions because. <laughs> Thank perfect. you, appreciate it. <laughs> We've done our job then. <laughs> um, no, but yeah, I, I want to answer them because it's a good challenge for me. But it's it's so um, it's so unlike me to put someone else ahead of someone else. If you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you if you look except Wayne Gretzky, besides that maybe, uh, obviously you have the the New York Rangers '94 winning in Stanley Cup team, but that's a different story. Uh, lifelong Rangers fan, by the way, but um, <laughs> except that it's it's difficult. But my favorite player when I grew growing up, uh, I did a quick search in my member back, and being goalkeeper, I saw Tafarel. That was the the one that popped up uh, later as an inspiration. Canizares. Um, so I don't know. I even I even dyed my hair blonde for a while. So uh, that was a Canizares thing. <laughs> <laughs> That was a short answer from Marcus Valfredson, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> the best manager you've played for? Um, oh, I struggle with this one. The, <laughs> I came down to Pascal Simpson, uh, former player. Yeah. Uh, and the reason, because it wasn't, he's not the tactical, wasn't the tactically best coach or whatever, but he is the best one who made me feel like I was, you know, the best person in the world. Mm -hmm. He had this, uh, he had this skill of, and this is something I tried to learn from a mirror that, you know, when, when you sat and had a conversation with him, it felt like you were the only thing that mattered in his life. And I think having that type of ability as a leader, I think that's, that's something to strive for. The best player you've played with? I get play with so many great players, uh, but truly some really good players. I think the the one that, on top of my brain, made it to the highest level. Uh, I think was a guy named or is a guy named Jens Skugmo in Norway. Um, played right back in uh, start uh, was a follow start, and funny thing I, I remember about him was that on the field we had a great connection, like really good. Um, but we didn't like each other 
so <laughs> but, but we were really good together on the field but weren't best friends off, off the field which also taught me something when uh, when going into coaching yeah this is where you have to do the <laughs> if he's watching right <laughs> so there's nothing but you know personality wise and you know some always some women in the picture so uh, all yeah. that stuff yeah. how about the best player that you've coached it's really difficult uh, obviously you coach some really good players young players especially I mean national team players uh, that have grown up to be national team players uh, you have one one just transferred to Elsport to be as Heinz, um, but um, you know I would say the whole Mjöndalen squad, obviously, being on the top level, um, being able to coach them, really fun. Some good players there, even American uh, Eric Hurtado, he was there yeah. a, little, a little bit. Great player at running fast straight, uh, so I had to try to ask him a little bit about his positioning, but it worked out well. Um, and obviously women's side, you know, Aslani, obviously Lynn Shopping. Um, but I would say that in terms of, of the play with the best skill, uh, combined with the potential combined with the willingness to learn, uh, I would say Maria Banusic. Do you have a, a memory? Do you have a best goal that you've scored or favorite goal that you've scored? <laughs> Do I have a memory of a goal I scored? I've scored. That's the question. Or by proxy, uh, by proxy, Marcus, if you want. Oh yeah, then it was right. <laughs> top corner from my own. Um, it happened last night in bed, eh? <laughs> Perfect. Football manager also is included, so. You also. <laughs> I, I didn't score many goals, um, but I have scored some penalties and I missed some penalties. I remember the ones I missed more. But uh... <laughs> you mentioned you're going to have your favorite lunch. What is your favorite meal? Uh, ribeye with Bernays. Yeah, very good. Yeah, <laughs> very good choice. That's, that's, that's a, that was a simple question. Your favorite movie? Uh, this is also a good one. Office Space. Oh. Interesting. Yeah, you can probably psychoanalysis do a psychoanalysis on me uh, just by by taking that movie as a starting point. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna go rewatch it this weekend. It's a great movie. Who's your favorite international player? Again, me and favorite players. So I was like, who? What do you mean with international player? But you know, uh, for I mean Swedish. I I, I want to get Slatan in here somewhere, so I need to get him in here. And honestly, I'm a huge, I'm so impressed by him in so many different levels uh, from a, being a marketing genius uh, to obviously still playing at my age uh, because we're the same age, I think. So it's uh, that in itself is impressive. If you could change your nationality in soccer, would you? And what would it be? I would change it to U.S. So my immigration will go much. <laughs> Great <laughs> answer. It's like 18 grand or something. <laughs> Great answer. Jesus Christ. I'm thinking I'm flying to Mexico and walking over. over. <laughs> <laughs> and if you could coach in any other sport, what sport would it be in? Well, I've actually coached floorball. Um, but... Uh, no one knows what that sport is, probably. Not in the English-speaking <laughs> world, no. <laughs> um, 
plastic sticks on, on the floor. Um, but uh, no, I would love to coach hockey. Uh, and, that, and I think I would, uh, obviously, <laughs> this, this is a humble speech. And David, you would also think this, I think. I would be a great hockey coach. Don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> it, seems, it seems so easy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, get get the puck on the net. You know, I remember get... in the in the I think it was a quarterfinals in the '94 Stanley Cup. Um, I, I remember they, they interviewed Esa Tikkanen huh. on uh, on American TV, and Esa wasn't good at English, and they they asked Esa, so Esa, you're down with one goal and then go into second period. What do you have to do? Well, we have to get the puck down and uh, get the puck down and uh, work the puck in. <laughs> Simple. Well, I, yeah, but I agree. I, I remember when I played hockey as well, like you put in the puck down to the corner and the coach, really great, David, just put it down the corner and the next guy can take it. I was like, this is easy to coach. <laughs> I never understood that because for me, when I played, I couldn't, I couldn't realize why should we get the puck further away from the goal yeah. when we're supposed to put it in the goal. <laughs> uh, but I do understand the thing, throw it at the net, which I, I always love because always when teams are struggling, what do we need to do? We need to throw it at the net. Yeah. Uh, well, that's where you score goals, so why not? <laughs> no, I agree. I started playing hockey quite late, so it was like pretty bad in skating. So I used to stand in front of the goal, get all the rebounds and stuff like that. <laughs> I, I stand and stood there like this. <laughs> I was a third string hockey goalkeeper to stay fit. Thank you for sharing, Tony. <laughs> in, New Zealand, well, in New Zealand, hockey is the field hockey. You know, they play in England. Oh, yeah. <laughs> my, my business partner in the club in Florida, by the way, he, he played field hockey. So, and I was yeah. like, what do you mean? What was that? And it has more participants in the world, by the way, not to make you guys angry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really strange. Should you do a follow-up episode on just hockey? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Different kinds of hockey. But leading on from that, then, if you weren't involved in football, what do you think you would have ended up doing? I would have ended up running my own business um, and trying to make the world a better place. Um, I'm still trying to make the world a better place, but now it's through football. Um, Okay. Well, that's the end of the rapid fire questions. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jesse. More, more curveballs at you, Marcus. Ooh, well, so what failure or apparent failure uh, set you up for later success? Um, Any time that you fell on your face, only to find a new way to stand, you know, type of thing. Uh, do you have a fa favorite failure of yours that you can tell us about? Well, you know, I fail every day, uh, so that's a that's a favorite thing. <laughs> But it's, it, you know, the, it's a long list, it feels like. I think the thing that impacted me the most um, was my burnout, uh, especially the one in, uh, in Linköping and successfully getting fired, which was a relief, by the way. Um, I already decided to quit before that happened. But I would say that burning out is an apparent failure. Uh, I, I, mean, I think that's the way it's looked at in general. So I, that's why I talk about it a lot, because I... I wish to make especially coaches aware that, you know, working six days a week or seven days a week, 11 months a year, 12 hours a day, it's not a very sustainable lifestyle. I mean, you, you might be the one who's able to make it happen, but risk is you're not. So uh, for me, that really opened my eyes into becoming more efficient, into uh, you know, making sure that I actually do the things that are most important now and not all the other stuff. So 
Um, I would say that the most, the parent failure that I kind of like the most now, looking back, because it's not a fun thing to go through, was burning out. But um, yeah, it's, you don't want to go through it because it, it's going to take you a couple of years to get back. And I mean, I, I went from watching football, soccer every day to not wanting to see a game. I didn't see a game. I think it took me one and a half years at least. Um, mm -hmm. Because I was so sick of it through the burnout. I remember that was that was the first time point I had contact with you at that point. I remember yeah. that right after that happened, you know, splitting with Lynn Shopping, I was calling you every week. You were in a different country. Yeah, you just went on this travel, incredible travel, and I mean, it's symbolic of your quest that you embarked on from that moment. So it wasn't like your burnout lasted long either. I think that travel um, really helped me because it. Uh, first of all, I did something with the altitude and, 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 and planes and stuff like that, um, that that really gets my brain going. So I, I like I like myself in in tall buildings and in airplanes, and I'm scared of heights, by the way. Um, so there's no logic behind it, but it, it really fuels my thinking, my reflection ability. And I think when you kind of when you are in that situation and you burn out, that changing your environment, and I think you see this also in in, in scientific papers that changing your environment is actually one of the first things you should do in order to kind of leave <laughs> because you physically leave your problems behind which is which is a helpful thing it sounds kind of silly but it's actually helpful and i think that though you know those travels um, really sp sped up my process and i think it would have taken even longer if i hadn't done that yeah for those of us with a fear of heights bolivia ecuador nepal accepted is soccer is a very good sport yeah <laughs> By the way, in the Swedish Swedish national team coach, I think, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a I, I had a player who'd never played at zero at zero uh, at zero altitude coming from like two thousand meters altitude once, and he had a hard time adapting down. I've never yeah. saw. Well, um, getting back to coaching, we, you spoke a little bit earlier about it when you had your injury and you wanted to be with try to learn as much as possible, but. If you go deeper into that, when did your interest in coaching begin and what did that look like more specific? Well, if we, uh, you know, my first coaching opportunity was in that obscure sport that we call floorball or that some people call floorball. We call it inibandi. Um, So I coached a women's team when I was 18 years old in floorball. Um, and I think I've always been interested in, I've always been interested in how groups work and how kind of people behave especially in groups and and i always said that you know the biggest challenge is to to make a group of people um work together towards a common goal uh, which is kind of what a coach is supposed to do so um, i think that that interest started when i was very young uh, i think it comes from my, my father building his own company and you know leading that to some success so i think that kind of is the starting point uh, of, my, of my coaching interest and and then when I kind of reflect on the on the, on my travels, um, especially after the Linköping thing we just talked about, I think one of the reflections came is that I, I mentioned before I always wanted to work in football. I always wanted to to coach or to be a leader of groups. But then I kind of tied it all together and said, well, maybe it's actually I want to be there and be the leader of the organization instead of being just the team. Um, you know, so. Um, yeah, it's from a childhood is, is the short answer. 
<laughs> Marcus is an expert in short answers for everybody out there. So, so. <laughs> <laughs> but it's more fun to talk. Yeah. <laughs> you have to be gentle to him, Tony, so you don't turn off the interview here. Second <laughs> time going at him. I'm very good at being gentle. Uh, yeah. Right. No. <laughs> 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 Tell me like this history <laughs> crashed. Anyways, um, yeah, you worked with some very influential football personalities. Uh, you've had contact with them. You're friends with a couple more. Uh, anybody else that has given you uh, a fragment of knowledge or a good piece of advice uh, that that uh, that is not your own, but that you've adapted? That you can think of i think probably everything that comes out of, out of my mouth comes from somewhere else yeah <laughs> uh, so, um because it's all inspiration maybe i've connected some dots here and there but i think mm. um the base of uh, my knowledge comes from other people um i think um, I, I think that um, i've been lucky enough to have had some really good football people in my life i think that's influential into why I uh, stayed in football, why, why I also was able to get to the level I was able to get at. Um, because if I wouldn't have had, let's say, like Mike Spite who brought me to Norway, uh, Pamela Thies Högmo who lived in the same city, uh, you know, you had multiple coaches living in that, that area and that were very open and, and friendly and, you know, uh, let me come and visit and, and all stuff. If that wouldn't have happened, obviously, my level of knowledge in the game would have been a lot less. Um, and, and also I might have ended up doing something else. Um, who knows? So I'm, I'm grateful for everyone that have, have been a part of this journey. Um, and, you know, there's, there's always been, there's been positive influences and been negative influences, but you learn from those as well. I think one of the, one of the reasons I used to say, one of the reasons why I want to be a coach was because I had so many bad coaches. And this is not, you know, to, to kind of talk down on someone, but it's just, you know, there was always, everyone was good at something, but it's always, you know, you see either they treat people very bad, poorly, or they're not tactically very astute, or, you know, it was always something, right? So, um, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for all the influences. And how different is coaching in the United States from Sweden? How would you compare that to continental Europe where you've, done lots of in-depth study? Well, I think that the difference is the culture. Um, in all of these places, it's the culture. there's a cultural difference in coaching between Sweden and Norway, which is neighbors and tiny nations. So um, I think, you know, saying that, or asking the question, what's the difference between coaching in Sweden and in the US, for example, that's like asking, what's the, what's the difference of coaching in Sweden and Asia? Mm -hmm. it, it's the same relative question because, you know, the US is pretty big. Uh, obviously, Asia is even bigger, maybe, but there's a there's a huge cultural difference within the U.S., which is my point that um, as there are differences between Sweden and Norway, there are differences between, between you know the Netherlands and Spain and Italy, and you know, and there's there's difference between the Northeast and there's uh, the Southeast and the the West. And, I mean, there's so many differences. Um, so the culture is uh, again the short answer. Um, and then obviously what's in the culture, that's where it kind of gets interesting, I think. Um, Do you have any anecdotes? Uh, sorry? Do you have any anecdotes? Um, well, I mean, 
the few times that I've been on the field coaching U.S. players, I've always been impressed by, by which is, a, I think, a cultural foundation to the country. You work really hard, right? You, I mean, you give your all because that's what you're told to do before, you know, before you were born. Uh, so, you know, from the moment you're born, uh, it's about hard work. Your parents work two jobs to support you. And, you know, that's just normal. Uh, whereas in Scandinavia, for example, in general, that is something you have to teach players. You have to teach players to give their best. Um, so in Norway and in Sweden, you have to teach players that when you go on the field, it's 100%. That is not something that is natural for them because that is not how, how the culture foundation of these countries are. Because we, you, know, you don't have to. You, you, can go at, you can cruise at 60% and you can still end up uh, having a decent job, a good family, live in a nice house. So, but you can't do that in the U.S. So that's the kind of one anecdote that is, uh, I think, a, it paints one picture at least. And then you obviously you have the different aspects in terms of tactical knowledge, et cetera, which is the polar opposite. Uh, so, I was thinking about like now you've been in Sweden, Norway, and U.S., but you have your philosophies, your systems, ideas. But how would you implement them in a team that doesn't speak English? by sign language um <laughs> now i think i mean the game is the game is the same so uh, i mean the, the 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 characteristics of the game is the same wherever you go the rules are more or less the same slight differences but more or less it's the same so that kind of gives you the starting point or the philosophy and then you have your team which will be different human beings than in, in the different spots so you will have to take them as a starting point and add them to your thoughts about how the game is played. And then you implement that through your training process. And obviously it's gonna be a bit be a better challenge if you don't speak the language, um, but then you just play and you move players around. That's what I would do. Tony, do you have any like input? I know you've been like a translator on the pitch as well. Direct translation doesn't work when you add the cultural filter. Uh, but at the same time, for me, the wonderful thing about football has been that it's an international game. It's the same sport in tier three West Bengal and tier one Oregon. Yeah. And that's, that's what I absolutely love about it. And I, think I actually, I mean, I joked a little bit when I said sign language, but in a way, I'm kind of serious because mm. if you're on the pitch, you have your context and within the context and you are pointing and you can do this or you yeah. can do different signs, yeah. uh, you know, that are, that are nonverbal communication that people, that players will understand. I think you can actually implement your playing style and, um, or, or the way you want to you wanna operate your team. I, th I think you actually can do that uh, because you have the context. And I, I've tried a couple of times with, I remember a training session with French players. I don't speak French. Um, and we had this exercise and it was like, you know, three passes and then a forward pass and then go uh, two, two against one or something. It was some kind of stupid exercise. But I remember I was like, I used the words I, I did know in French. So it was like, un, deux, trois, ballon. You know, the ball and the, the, the point. <laughs> yeah, they worked perfectly. That was beautiful. 
Yeah. Yeah. And then even one. things about like uh, the tone of your voice as well, you know, yeah. that they can always tell when you're angry or happy with them from the tone of your voice. And, mm. and I remember this, uh, you know, remember the Swedish referee Anders Frisk? Yeah. yeah. I, I remember reading this interview um, and they asked him, hey, when you referee a Italian team and a German team or whatever, what language do you speak? And he said, Swedish. <laughs> because the Swedish words along with his his gestures makes everyone understand what it is and I, I tried this I did this um when I was like 20 maybe I refereed a little bit up north and there was this tournament with a Spanish team there and you know I understood a couple of Spanish words like you know tarajeta and stuff like that so I heard someone you know so it was a probably foul I gave an advantage and I heard, tarajeta, tarajeta. and I was like uh, in Swedish said that no that's no card and then I ran away. And at the end of the game, one of the players came. They were losing like 4-0. Spanish, uh, it was a girls team, Spanish girls team. And she came to me and she said something. Like, blah, 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 basically how it sounded to me. And I figured that due to context, they were losing. It was the end of the game. She's asking me how much time is left. So I, I did this, you know, put my wrist up, looked at my watch, and I showed her two. And I said, in Swedish, it's two minutes left. And she was like, Okay. <laughs> Unbelievable. But but it's a, it's a great story. But yeah, I think I think it was like Frank Lampard or John Terry who told like similar about like Carlo Ancelotti. Like when it, when it, they play bad in the first half, you know, like what did Carlo said? I know idea you're screaming in Italian, but we know what we have to do. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there's this, this this one hands gesture, which is this one. Yeah. Every coach does, every <laughs> sportscaster puts a completely different interpretation on it. And it, always, it always means the same. It means move the ball around, right? Uh, or retain possession. Well, yeah, I, that's, I the, that, that's the same as well about I've played football in a lot of different countries as well. So obviously, you know, you do pick up football words quite quickly because you're exposed to it on a regular and daily basis. But if I speak English and I'm pointing, you know, there's a there is a football communication there as well you know it's a common language football is a common language no definitely definitely this is a kids friendly channel jesse so don't give us examples <laughs> <laughs> well, which languages <laughs> um flipping the coin quickly but it's an interesting question to ask you how important is diversity in the game of football how 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 important is it in life I mean, for me, I keep coming back to it that, you know, I don't care where you're from. I don't care how you look. I don't care your gen what your gender is. Um, for me, that's irrelevant. The only thing that's important for me is that you know what you're talking about um, and that you kind of have the goods. You can deliver the goods. Uh, everything else should be, should be, um, you know, shouldn't even be, uh, be in the line of thinking. It's unnatural, I think. To, to actually take other stuff into consideration. That being said, um, diversity of thought, I think is a relatively important thing and relatively because it depends on your position and your role and what your objective is. In theory, you know, having, all, uh, having a lot of people with different, you know, uh, diverse thinking crowd, um, 
is a very good thing, right? Because you could get, you know, perspectives that you had no clue about, right? So you can get a lot of different angles. However, and this is something I discussed with, with a high performance director in the NBA that he, he put together a, a team of, I mean, top, top physicians and doctors and, you know, scientific people. And they had a very diverse background. But what he found was that he had spent a lot of time um, basically brokering deals between these people because they were arguing all the time. So uh, diversity of thought is a very good concept. And I think it's important to an extent, but you, I think you also have to know where to kind of draw the line. Uh, how outside the, the box, how far outside the box do you want your staff to go? Um, how, uh, let's say, how, how um, what's the best way of phrasing this? But, you know, the, the important thing is at the end of the day, you're working with something, a group or an organization that's supposed to perform at the highest possible level. So how can you get that group to perform at the highest possible level? Well, some of it is diversity of thought, right? So you need different inputs in order to find the best possible ways of making this happen. But if you only have diversity of thought, meaning that you have no consensus at all, well, then how do you, I mean, where, where do you go, right? The risk is you end up just running around different loops. So, uh, and no, no, not getting anywhere. So I would say you need it, uh, diversity of thought. I think you having people from different backgrounds, different ideas, uh, different experiences, I think that's crucial. I think you as the leader, as the head coach, you need to have people around you um, that make you a little bit uncomfortable, uh, that come from different backgrounds. Because if you only surround yourself with people that look like you, have the same background as you, think more or less the same way, I mean, then you could, you know, don't hire them. I mean, then it's like hiring yourself three times over, right? So you do need the diversity um, because I think um, a lot of a lot of ingenuity, a lot of uh, discovery, a lot of um, you know innovation comes from the clashing of thoughts. But so that's a caveat then. You know, so you need diversity of thought. You need that, but you also need a very strong reference in order to make sure that it's actually allowed to have, or you need a kind of a, almost a protocol for how to communicate with each other, right? Because if you have different people with different ideas and thoughts, uh, instead of getting into entrenched positions, you need some kind of reference to move everything forward. So you need the common goal, you need that uh, the clear mission statement, right? You need those things to make sure that you're on the right path, you're on the same path. And then it's okay to, to think differently, it's okay to, you know, have different opinions about it. But at the end of the day, this is us. We are, this is we, we are, you know, this group is we. Uh, I think that's the key. And as, as long as you can, can have that, uh, you know, be as diverse as possible. So the old school coach dictator isn't gone. Well, if you look around you, <laughs> you know the answer. Um, I think there are times where you do need that uh, dictatorship. Uh, as you call it, and you, I mean, on all types of different levels of the leadership scale, when you are at the crisis, who do people, uh, you know, cling to? Well, they cling to the guy who's pointing with his whole hand and the arm is straight out and this is the way we're gonna go. You know, that's not time for, for commission discussion. And I think in general, 
Um, you know, you, you can't lead a club by commission. It's not possible. You need responsibility. You need accountability uh, because if no one's accountable, then eventually at the end of the day, you have nothing. Then going on from that, then you've worked in multiple different areas of football. Do you, do you hear any bad recommendations that come up frequently throughout different areas of the game? And if anything comes to mind, what are they? There's lots. <laughs> you know, um, work hard, right? That's a horrible recommendation. Work smart instead. Uh, you know, be the smartest guy. Don't be the, the guy who's punching in the earliest and punches out the latest uh, because that doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is at the end of the day if, you, if you're winning games or developing players. Um, I think uh, what's funny with kind of coach education is that you have, you have one game, it's played around the world, you have the same rules more or less, but you have vastly different coach education programs. And you're always... And this is what something that kind of personally kind of bugs me a little bit is the, the importance within soccer, especially to, uh, or this, it might be a social, I mean, concert, I don't know, but at least this, I, I recognize it mostly within soccer is that whatever you say is always referenced towards who you are. So if you're the guy who won five World Cups, no one has done that, by the way, but uh, of coaches at least, um, <laughs> or players. Uh, <laughs> but if you are that guy, then uh, I'll take everything of you, what you're saying as a truth and as a holy grail, and this is the way it's going to be done. So I think that is maybe the worst, um, in a way, that's the worst recommendation. Recommendations from that, that's based on who the person is instead of what the person is actually saying. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense, um, but I do think I, I think in society in general we have that challenge that's you know it's more important who you are than what you say, and I, I think for me that's just totally wrong because it's what you say and what you do that's the most important thing. Who you are is just that's just who you are. I mean that's we can accept that. Uh, I mean great for you that you won two league titles or whatever. You might have been lucky twice, but mm. uh, we don't know. But I mean great for you. But what you're saying is the important stuff. Yeah. We, we call this part the rounder. It's the general questions, you know, that we want to know from all the different personalities that, that we will be interviewing. Um, define success, Marcus. I didn't hear you, Tony. What did you say? Uh, define success. The success is individual. So success for me will be something different than for all of you. And... Um, for me, it's, it's, uh, it's reaching my life goals or vision, if you will. So for me, I've set, set a couple of goals, a couple of visions that I want to achieve, you know, in terms of my family life, uh, you know, wanting to live in the U.S., uh, having, you know, a great family, healthy family, uh, you know, being able to help people, uh, you know, being financially stable and all that good stuff. So I have a couple of, I've, I've done a thorough process to kind of figure out what is that I want in different areas of my life. So success for me is achieving those, uh, I would say. And then I think it's a difficult question, man. It's, uh, 
because <laughs> what happens then? So what happens when you have the family and the kids and you know the you know the the money in the bank and all that good stuff? So can I change my answer because now I feel like success is yeah. more, more like about the journey. So uh, for for some reason uh, this has come comes to me now, but it's uh, I think for me the success is is living the journey and and ticking off stuff. So I do think accomplishing things is important on that journey, but it feels like it's all you know like it's stations, train stations on the long track, right? So it's it's a track that 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 runs off to eternity. And you have different stations on the route that you kind of want to stop at and you want to look at different things and you have some different scenery. But at the end of the day, you know, you're staying on the track and keep moving forward. I think that is, uh, for me, true success. Money. Question about money. Mm -hmm. $100 to- or less that you spent that made a positive impact on your life in the last six months. This can Less than $100 looks more. Yeah, it should be more. <laughs> that was the short answer. <laughs> yeah, okay, let's see. Yeah. All right, move on. Timer as well. Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, honestly, I don't know. Uh, no, no. Uh, well, okay. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, I bought a book, uh, two books actually. I, I bought. I, I bought. I bought. I actually bought more, but uh, <laughs> hundred dollars. Hundred dollars. Yeah, so, um, I bought two books. Uh, one uh, which have made both of them have made already a huge impact. One is How Innovation Works by Matt Ridley. Definitely recommend that. Very. It's relatively easy to read and and puts things in perspective on how. It, you know, innovation in different sectors, so like transportation, health, uh, education, all that sort of stuff. We're going to link um, it below. Yeah. Uh, so that was, a, that was a good investment. Uh, second book is uh, David Deutsch, uh, Beginning of Infinity. So that's um, also um, also something we can we can link to. And I haven't processed that yet. So uh, I've, I've read it. I'm not quite done with it yet. And I need to re- re- read it once more. So a little bit tougher read. But philosophically speaking, really good. You know, uh, talks a lot about about science being good explanations and bad explanations. Hmm. Well, that's if you... football, that's difficult, by the way. Like good explanations, football. We talk about it being very subjective, but you know, a good explanation of why the game went the way it went, right? Versus a bad explanation. It's uh, I don't know. Just sorry, Dave. And one no. that fits the personalities, like you said earlier, Tang. I mean, that's true. Explanation has to fit the personalities. Different people will d- understand different things differently. Yeah, different perspectives. I agree. And I always, always remember when you had a coach and a football player, a football pitch, whatever, they always said, good thought. <laughs> and I was like, what is good thought? What do you mean with good thought? <laughs> it's, it's, it's fascinating, right? Because uh, sometimes I think, you know, um, ah, you know, from my own perspective, oh, that was a good thought. So I, I thought correctly, but my execution was horrible. Because I did the wrong thing, right? So I, you know, my intention was good, but my execution was horrible. Uh, but yeah, it's like, how can you know what a, what a person is thinking? Exactly. <laughs> it is, um, that's just what do you call it when you apply your own thinking to someone else. Um, yeah. the, the, the word eludes me, but anyway. 
implementation? Well, <laughs> if you want to get the word out there, you have this gigantic billboard. What's the message you will will send out? What would it say? Um, I think it would say uh, the path is smooth. Why do you throw rocks in front of you? Well. Not my words. It's uh, some quote from a book I read, obviously, but uh, and it's you know attributed to no one, especially some some ancient uh, wisdom kind of thing. Um, but for me, that really resonates because it's. I think we create a lot of problems for ourselves, um, and I think that's what that quote symbolizes. That you know, we 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 make things out to be a lot harder than they are. Uh, I think that the moment when you uh, rid yourself of the constru constraints of your own thinking, or at least most of it, you will see uh, really cool things happening. You know, uh, all of a sudden you get a you know, crazy idea of starting a club in the US, for example, or, you know, um, so that's a challenge, I think. And I think we see that um, definitely something that helped, by the way, on the meditation camp, you see that more afterwards, the, um, the, the constraints that most people uh, put on their own thinking and they limit themselves so much that it's it's a pain to watch to be honest and it's like comment section in social media that's a that's a good place to be in uh, for, <laughs> for experiencing that yeah um going back to money perhaps not little more than a hundred dollars this time but what or, or less but what is one of the best or most worthwhile investment you ever made it could also be not money, like energy, time, and so on. The meditation camp. It's free. Mm. Um, but it, it pays forever. Kind of thing. So, yeah, that, I think that's, uh, that's the one. And I think any, any big project you undertake, right? So, um, you know, deciding that I want to be a great coach. Um, because that led me on a path, um, you know, deciding that I'm going to start a club in the U.S. because that's leading me on a path. And I don't know if, you know, we never know if it's going to happen. I think it will, but um, something else might pop up along the, the way that makes, uh, makes your life take a different turn, right? So um, making those huge decisions, uh, setting those uh, big, hairy, audacious goals, as uh, Jim Collins would have said, uh, I think those are yeah, meditation camp and, and bag. Big <laughs> In the last five years, what have you become better at saying no to? What new realizations and or approaches has helped or any other tips for time management? This. Ooh. Uh, so I have a message from you, Tony, by the way. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah this turning off all the notifications uh turning off you know there's no red dots here you know so that stuff um inspired by tim first um so limiting limiting the input i think that's uh, the key thing also part of the meditation stuff right so yeah. you know focus it focuses your thinking much more so i think that's the biggest efficiency hack that i could could put out there um, meditation and 
um, you know, limiting distractions um, as much as possible. Uh, also, do not watch. I don't have a TV, um, which I sometimes I regret because I want to watch the game in on the big screen sometimes. But you know, it uh, keeps me focused on what I'm doing instead of uh, just. I don't. I can't remember the last time I you know laid on the couch right and watched a game or watched TV. That's probably five years ago, or at least four. Well, that kind of leads on to the next question. When you are feeling unfocused or you've lost your focus for a short period of time, what's something that helps bring you back into that focus? Lying on the couch and watching TV. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but it's uh, um, different strategies, I think. Uh, sometimes, you know, you, you have these days when, you know, oh, you know, it's, no, you know nothing feels like it's, it's fun today, you know? So what do you do? Well, uh, if possible, go outside, go for a walk, go, I mean, if, it, if you can walk in nature, that helps to inspire because you, usually it's about, you know, rearranging thinking. Uh, also, sometimes I say, okay, let's take a half an hour or 40 minutes or an hour to watch something to inspire myself. So that could be a YouTube video. Uh, it could be, a, you know, an episode of Hard Knocks, for example, one of my favorite shows. Um, it could be watching a game or a half a game or whatever to kind of, you know, get me it's usually for me, what I recognize is that when I have these moments, it's because I've been working a little bit too much. So what I need is just time to relax, uh, in different ways. And that could be, you know, what, what you said, or, uh, if, if the weather would be better or warmer, I would go play golf. Uh, that, that's obviously a nice one. We just spend time with my girlfriend or, or with someone else, go for coffee or something. So, and I think the, you know, tying this into the last five years question, I would say that the biggest difference for me is that I now um, kind of, you know, I blame myself less for having these stints of, you know, uh, let's call it uh, not feeling motivated or, you know, that, that kind of low low energy moments or uh, low low motivation moments so because in the past i blamed myself i thought you know i yeah. have to do this or you, you know you're not going to be able to go where you want to go and that is was not a smart strategy so i kind of learned that and now i just accept it so okay today i don't feel like doing much okay so what can i actually do is there something among obviously the benefit of of, of being uh, kind of involved in many different projects that I, I can kind of pick and choose. So even if I plan that today would be, you know, working on the efficient code, for example, but then when I sit down to do stuff, uh, it would be more fun to, to explore a possible investor for, uh, for a club or, you know, uh, help Tony find a player or something. And, uh, you know, that kind of, you know, being a little bit more relaxed about it, accepting it, and then I say, okay, is there something that I would like to do that actually also fits on, on the path? And if not, just take the time. And did you learn that maybe through also meditation as well through, you know, letting thoughts come into your mind and then letting them go, you know, and to kind of keep, be fully aware and be fully conscious of what you're doing and just to let, let problems that are what you said, not, the end of the world or something that you can't control get in your way and cloud your mind i think i think the most important when you have those thoughts you know just oh there they are oh, so mm -hmm. i'm now thinking that i'm not good enough for example you know uh, 
well, wait a minute, is that actually true? Uh, is that objectively true? Is it subjective? You know, is it, uh, um, can I change it? What can I do to not think like this again? You know, so um, I think, you know, because when you have the thought and it goes away, it odds are it comes back, right? So uh, it's not only about accepting the thought, it's about accepting what the thought means um, so that you can kind of work with that and it gives you kind of clues to, to what you can, can do in the, you know, to, to improve yourself or program your brain in a different way. Uh, so you can kind of, kind of say next time, you know, I'm not going to eat that because that made me feel, that could have made me feel like this. So next time in this situation, maybe stay off that sugar or whatever, right? Um, those kind of things. It's yeah, well, that's exact, exactly it about being, being conscious about what you're doing, about being in the present moment and then learning from that as well. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's strange how many people you meet that you would consider the, the best in a grouping and they're the ones who constantly beat themselves up. Yeah. Actually, um, isn't that what part of the what do you call it, big five personality traits? Yeah, I think so. Um, and it's uh, you know it's that constant feeling of not feeling good enough. Um, sometimes I wish you know I can just you know sit at TV and stare at it and you know be happy with life. You know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah. We're. Uh... To, to, to finalize, I'm going to ask you to, to just introduce your book to us. And also we're going to link uh, your book and the podcast down below at the end. Mm -hmm. But I have the final questions that we asking uh, everybody. So, Marcus, what makes difference between levels in a profession, in any profession, and maybe football more specifically? I wish I could say competence, but I can't. Um... I mean, it depends on, I guess, how you interpret the question. So now I'm interpreting it as, as what's the difference to make it to a different level, right? So to work on a different level. Uh, I don't know if that's the way you intended it, but if that's the case, uh, then I would say it's part, hopefully it's part of comp competence is part of it. Um, but unfortunately, I think it's more about network and your personality and luck. Okay. And, and it's funny because I, I, I give advice sometimes to, to coaches that I work with in terms, you know, before a interview, for example, if you have a job interview and everyone thinks, you know, I have to do this huge presentation about the playing style and et cetera, et cetera, uh, the coaching methodology and, you know, the pedagogy we're going to use. To, and then I tell them, well, you are pitching to people who have no clue what you're talking about. So because the board members, they don't know anything about what you're talking about, maybe a little bit somewhere. So some of them might be able to ask a question, but what you should do is pitch yourself. You should make them like you and you should make them trust you and you should make them believe that you are a great leader. The question, the question that every scout hates, what's this player's level? Yeah. How, how do you tell? How, how do you tell a player's level? How do you tell any professional's level? I don't think you can, no, but not from outside. I think just just you know visually observing someone is is very is a poor. I mean, it is the basis. Maybe you you have so it's constraints in in the business, but um, you would you would like to peek inside the brain, right? Or at least uh, look at uh, the character of the player. You know what what 
what what is this player? Because and this is when you I, I think you see this much more now in in especially top major league sports that you know I have a friend who's who works um, as a um, well part of what they do is they they help NBA teams do personality tests on draft uh, possible draft uh, subjects. So they sit down with them and you know they do a personality test so they get some information and you know they have conversations etc. So you at least have a little bit more information, right? And you can say what you want about personality test because that's flawed as well, but it's at least it gives you a pointer, some direction about who this player is because they're getting to the point at least, which I think is great that to realize that since it's a team sport, it might be a good idea if the players on the team actually also can work together um, because that's kind of what it's about. And you see this, I think in, in football, you see this when, you know, players looking good in, in one club goes to another club and look like crap, right? So it's more to it. Um, but if that's the tool you have and you're supposed to judge it, I mean, give it your best guess. I mean, this is what life is about. And I kind of recognize this, that, you know, in, in most occupations, um, people don't really know what they're doing. Uh, I mean, they're, 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 I mean, they're giving their best and they're, you know, giving, you know, they're doing all they can and, it's a good guess, but no one knows. So uh, I would ask, answer that question in the same way. I mean, you know, you, you decide what level it is. Uh, you might be right, uh, you might be wrong, but at least you made a guess. If you have some, if you can structure that guess by using some kind of, um, you know, say rules or something for, for yourself. So you say that I base my valuation on this, this, and this and hopefully those are relatively objective things, um, then at least you can you know, follow a system and then you can go back and you can look at it and say, nah, my, my guess is for, you know, I was 20% right. I want to improve it to 50 at least. So maybe I have to change this variable in my system. Hmm. So employ some sort of system. I would say that's the, you know, the best way in you know, getting uh, anywhere in the world. Um, employ a system for your, for your health, for your energy levels, for your, career for your scouting for your coaching and because then you have something to fall back at and it uh, you know if you're going to fail it's better to fail with a plan so you know what you actually can change to succeed instead of failing with no plan because then you just have no <laughs> good i like the answer what is game site to you game insight to you I'll, I'll rephrase that marcus what is game insight to you it's about good decision making. So it's about making good decisions, I would say. And um, I mean, for, for our conversation, it's also a company. Um, but, but for our conversations, it's also, uh, you know, good making decision, making good decisions in, in, in the game of soccer. Yeah. And all that goes into it. Yep. What's about your book? You've got a book on Amazon that is costs a whopping 99 cents. Yeah, it's going to make me rich, man. <laughs> Richer. Richer. <laughs> Richer. Richer. Who's Richard? Uh, uh, over, over. Um, it's, uh, well, the book is called Improving Coaching Actions. Yeah. It's uh, actually my second ebook. It's a short read. Uh, hopefully, it's a simple read. The whole idea behind it is um, to, put, to look at the part of your what I call kind of, you know, the coaching efficiency cycle, I kind of call it. So 
it consists of four things, you know, because before you coach, you prioritize, uh, you prepare, you execute your coaching, and then you evaluate, hopefully. You know, if you employ those four things, you will become a more efficient coach or leader or whatever, um, because, uh, you know, you have a bigger chance of success. That's the system. And this is focused on the execution part. So this talks a lot about, you know, uh, when you coach a player, how can you improve uh, the outcome of that action, that coaching action? And it's kind of, you know, the idea here is that when, because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, we, we spoke about this on this podcast that I'm, I'm stepping outside coaching. And this is my way of kind of giving back to the coaching community to, uh, so I, what I want to do is I want to, you know, write a full length book on the topic of, of uh, efficient coaching. And this will be a part of it. But I thought, you know, let's take this out because it's, I think it's very important. I think it's something that can help coaches. Um, and it's, it's based on stories. It's based on uh, stories, you know, experience I had with clients, um, also from my own career that we've, we've spoken about. And you'll go, you know, walks you through how you can become uh, even more efficient when you, when you coach. And uh, when I say efficient, I mean how you can coach better and, you know, spend less time doing it. Fantastic. And you have a podcast if uh, readers want longer answers to things. <laughs> uh, not yet. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna launch a long answer podcast. <laughs> uh, for those who want the two hours sleep uh, pill. Um, uh, I started the efficient coach podcast last year. I handed over the reins to uh, Ben Johnstone, who's now the host. Uh, who's doing a great job of interviewing people and I've been on there and talked a little bit about the book and, and becoming more efficient but we're kind of evolving that and you know bringing more cool guests on and trying to keep it short so that's why I wasn't uh, I wasn't the best host <laughs> <laughs> thank you we're gonna link everything below and uh, I don't know Marcus it's been really inspirational and a pleasure to talk to you I mean I you know we started off with naming your your 18 different hats that you've worn uh, besides the efficient coach one. Uh, but at the same time, it all comes down to a core person that is capable of wearing 18 different hats efficiently. And um, I think it was really enlightening. Uh, and uh, I'm really looking forward to see your, your very soon to materialize projects materialize because I'm very optimistic about them. And, and uh, those that know me will know that I'm not just an optimistic guy about future projects. So... <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, thank you very much for having us on and, uh, and, uh, and being, a, being a part of this new initiative uh, and helping us make it better yes, uh, I think it was, a, it was very it was enjoyable uh, obviously you got me talking because I never talk so much so uh, you know, thank you for that thank you for allowing me to talk and you know, uh, Jesse when you edit this uh, hopefully I can talk a little bit less <laughs> <laughs> Every other word, I'll, Jesse. I'll Every extend other... it even longer. <laughs> <laughs> Let's experiment with cutting, cutting out all the words. <laughs> uh, thank you, guys. It's been, uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Marcus. No, thank you, Marcus. Cool. Really learned a lot. Thank you. Here you go. Bye-bye. Bye. Ciao.